0: Hello and welcome to episode 174 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast, I'm Adam. Thank you for joining me today for a story from Oxford, when a couple at universities should be enjoying the time of their lives but instead, events take a shocking turn. I'm taking part in Podcast Live Crime, a podcast festival over two evenings dedicated to murder, investigations and bad behaviour. Join me at Wilton's Music Hall in Whitechapel on Tuesday the 7th of April and Wednesday the 8th of April. I'm recording a live show, live on stage, on Tuesday the 7th of April at 9.30pm. Should be lots of fun if I can stay away from the bar. With podcasts like Red Handed, Real Crime Profile and Unheard, the Fred and Rose West Tapes performing live too. Come and join us. Get your tickets at UKTrueCrime.com This week's show is sponsored by BetterHelp. That is better, H-E-L-P. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Maybe you're struggling with confidence or to get back to normal after a bereavement. Better help will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's no crisis line, it's not self-help, it's professional counselling done securely online which is so much more convenient and financially affordable than traditional offline counselling. And by scheduling weekly video or phone sessions, you won't ever have to sit again in that uncomfortable waiting room. And you can log on and message your counsellor at any time. Take a look at what their customers are saying about the service at betterhelp.com forward slash reviews and how it's helped so many people. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash true crime, that's better H-E-L-P, and join over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And there is a special offer for listeners to the UK True Crime Podcast, as you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash truecrime. Take a look today. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Paul Pacini, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Dark Master and Marie Harris. Thank you all so much for your support, which is really appreciated. Let's take a look at the music we were listening to at the time of today's events. Guess the month when we're finished. Top of the UK charts was one hit wonder Chesney Hawks with I wanted to sing it. I am the one and only with Sit Down from James at number two. I try not to think about my days dancing. I use the term loosely, of course, to that song. In the US, the top spot was a London beat with I've been thinking about you. Haven't heard that one for a while, and in the Australian album charts, "Friend of the Show" and "Horses Legend" Daryl Braithwaite was at number one. Get in. In the news this month, the Dow Jones Index closed above three thousand for the first time. Social services in the Orkney Islands were criticised for the handling of more than hundred children who were later returned to their families after being taken away over allegations of child abuse. The FA announced plans for a new Super League of eighteen clubs to replace the Football League First Division, and George Carey became the new Archbishop of Canterbury. Parting in the street over that appointment, were not you? So the month was? It was April 1991. Today's story comes from Oxford, a city of around 155,000 people, around 50 miles northwest of London. We pick up today's events in 1991, when Rachel McLean was a second-year student at St Hilda's College in Oxford studying English. Rachel, she was 5 foot 6 tall, gingery auburn, long hair which came down to her shoulders. She was born in Blackpool in the northwest of England, growing up nearby as the oldest of three children. She had two younger brothers. Her mum was head of foreign languages at her nearby school, and her dad an engineer at British Aerospace. It was a happy, fun childhood where Rachel, who was bright academically, worked hard at school, and later at Blackpool Sixth Form College, where she completed her A-levels. Jennifer Penty was Head of English Literature at Blackpool Sixth Form College, and she said of Rachel, T.S. Eliot was her passion and my specialism, so we worked closely together. She was such a splendid student, with a real talent for writing interesting, creative pieces. Rachel loved all her English literature texts, and she was a keen poet, and in the end she got an A in A-level English and along with her other strong grades, managed to secure a place at St Hilda's College at Oxford University. This was a really big deal for Rachel, and one of the first people she shared this news with was Jennifer Penty, and the pair kept in contact to talk all things English literature during Rachel's university holidays. The day that Rachel went to Oxford to begin her course was amazing for her, and for days afterwards, She couldn't quite believe where she was and she walked around the streets and university buildings, just taking in the environment where she'll be spending her time for the next three years. If you haven't been to Oxford University, it's hard to comprehend just how stunning some of the buildings are, and of course steeped in such history, which can be hard to take in for some new students. Vegetarian Rachel was religious and a regular churchgoer who cared deeply about the environment. She wasn't loud and dominant, but she was principled, quietly determined and had the ability to build strong interpersonal relationships. Rachel always made an impact in those areas that were important to her. She worked as an entertainment rep for her college and building on this, she was later elected vice-president of St Hilda's College Junior Common Room, which meant she liaised with college authorities to protect the interests of almost 400 undergraduates in her college. Concrete achievements for Rachel at this time included playing a role in developing a sexual harassment code of complaints procedure with the Dean of the College. Sensible, hard-working, but also lots of fun with a wide circle of friends, Rachel thrived on life at university, getting involved with the Industrial Society, carrying out voluntary work for Christian Aid and the Samaritans, and indulging her love for heavy metal music as a member of the University Rock Society. And her love life was going well too. For her 19th birthday party back home in Blackpool, she met a man called John Tanner from New Zealand. He was studying at Nottingham University and had been in Blackpool meeting a friend of his when he met Rachel at her birthday party at her home. Rachel was immediately drawn to the tall, attractive, classic student John and he was absolutely smitten. They began to date, spending a lot of time with each other and visiting each other at their respective universities. It was on the nineteenth of April nineteen ninety one that Rachel's family received a call from the university. Rachel had been scheduled to attend a meeting with her tutor that morning to discuss work for the new term and sit a pre term exam at the college later in the afternoon, but she hadn't shown up, most unlike her. A phone call to Rachel's family in Lancashire confirmed that they had dropped Rachel back to Oxford the previous weekend. In fact, Rachel had spent the Easter bank holiday weekend with her family in the northwest, and her mum Jean dropped her back to Oxford on the Saturday, a week before the start of the new term to give her time to study. They had lunch after they arrived back in Oxford and did some shopping for food and about 4pm Jean headed home. Rachel's boyfriend John had been due at 6pm and Rachel, as usual, headed to the railway station to meet him. John was delayed and so Rachel returned to her house on her own with John getting a taxi when his train finally arrived, getting to the house at about 7:30 p.m., Rachel's mum called a little later that evening to say she was home safely. It was a five-hour drive back to the northwest, and that was the last time she'd spoken to Rachel. The police were called the next day to report Rachel as a missing person. The college and police were not certain that Rachel had come to any harm, as it was relatively common for university students to go missing for a few days for a large variety of reasons, usually turning up safe and well, apologetic for causing any sort of a fuss. But after speaking with the family, police chatted to John Tanner too. He told them what had happened that weekend, after he had arrived at the house on the Saturday evening. Saturday was FA Cup semi-finals day. And for younger listeners, although it's hard to believe, people used to be interested in the FA Cup, yeah. He told them how as a big Nottingham Forest supporter, John watched a Forest game on the TV and Rachel studied in the front room half-watching too. At lunchtime that day, Rachel had called her grandma to say thank you for sending a food parcel. John explained how the next day he'd given Rachel a farewell kiss on Platform 2 of Oxford Railway Station as he boarded his train home. He also explained how he and Rachel had been joined by a long-haired man he hadn't known as they sat drinking coffee in the station whilst waiting for his train. He said the stranger seemed to know Rachel well and offered her a lift home. And at Rachel's house, police found a letter John had written to Rachel as he waited for his 6.30 train to Nottingham. It said, My dearest lovely Rachel, Thank you for such a wonderful weekend. Please excuse the handwriting, as I am now sadly wending my way away from your smiling face. Fancy seeing that friend of yours at the station. It was nice of him to give you a lift, but I hate him because he has longer hair than me. Ha ha. It's nice to know you will not be alone for the next few days. I worry about you in that house on your own. So who was this man? And police wondered would he have information on where Rachel was right now? The investigation into Rachel's disappearance had been quiet and under the radar. But on the 21st of April, the local CID took control of the inquiry and detectives began to seriously consider that Rachel had come to harm and so made a search of her house. During the initial search though, there was nothing to suggest that she had come to any harm and no sign of anything untoward at the house. On the 23rd of April, the investigation stepped up another notch as police conducted house-to-house inquiries around Rachel's house in Argyll Street while Sniffer dogs searched nearby Scrubland. Detectives carried out a second search of the house, but again, there was no sign of Rachel. The next day saw Rachel's parents, Joan and Malcolm, facing the ordeal of a press conference to ask for information about Rachel. And after this, the case was taken over by Detective Bound, the head of Thames Valley Police, Northern Crimes Area. And the same day, the nearby River Cherwell became the centre of attention as police divers searched for Rachel. The police investigation continued to grow, and was now almost 50 officers strong, as detectives investigated the large number of sightings of Rachel coming in from all over the country. Although most seemed very unlikely, all had to be followed up just in case, but none came to anything of substance. On the 27th of April, with the help of John Tanner, police issued a photofit picture of the mysterious long-haired stranger, that Rachel had met at the railway station. But nobody came forward with a name or any clues about who he was. By now, as the family clung to hope that the next call or knock on the door was the one they were praying for, detectives on the other hand were certain that Rachel was dead and believed her body was likely to be close to where she lived. On the 28th of April, search teams examined sewers and cesspits around her house to look for her, but still there was no success. On Monday the twenty-ninth of April, John Tanner agreed to take part in a press conference and a reconstruction of Rachel's final known movements. It was a difficult conference and John was clearly under pressure. As he told reporters that he was not the mystery man he was claiming had left with Rachel, he said, I had nothing to do with her disappearance. I know what people are saying. When one reporter suggested a message to anyone holding Rachel against her will, he looked directly into the cameras and said I would appeal to them to come forward and tell us just out of sheer consideration for her mother and father and myself. The hour-long reconstruction saw him pose in the station cafe with a female detective and he walked along the platform and showed where he had kissed Rachel before catching the train. Once more at the end of this session the pressure showed and John said to reporters I did not kill her. I don't know what happened to her. In my heart of hearts, I know that she is still alive. The reconstruction gave detectives the break they needed as two independent witnesses placed John Tanner at the railway stations. But crucially, they hadn't seen Rachel there. And another witness placed John on the bus from Rachel's house to the railway station, but again, there was no sign of Rachel. This increased the growing conviction amongst detectives that it was her boyfriend, John Tanner, who had killed Rachel probably at the house the weekend she went missing, but they needed to find her body. At the beginning of May, detectives made direct contact with Oxfordshire County Council, asking for details about the layout of houses in Argyle Street, particularly about their basements, which is where they felt John must have concealed Rachel. But they were told there were in fact no basements in the houses. A crucial break did come their way, when one official recalled that the houses were underpinned which meant there were cavities under the floors where a body could potentially have been concealed. Detectives rushed to the house a day later, the 2nd of May 1991, and just before 5.30pm, they found Rachel McLean's body covered in carpet. There had been no decomposition to the body due to the particularly cold spring of 1991. Rachel had been just 19 when she died, and also spare a thought for her poor housemates who had been unwittingly living in the house for over two weeks, unaware that their friend's lifeless body was concealed there. Within an hour of the body being found, John Tanner was arrested at a pub in Nottingham and taken into custody. At first he refused to answer any questions, but the next day, when confronted with all the evidence against him, Tanner broke down and admitted the murder of Rachel McLean. Detective Bound would later comment, Having had all the facts put to him, he showed the first glimmer of emotion. But he was a difficult character. In fact, anyone who can go through a press conference with the parents of the girlfriend he murdered is very different to you and me, aren't they? Tanner insisted that he wrote his own statement, which said that when Rachel had told him why she didn't want to be engaged, he'd been offended and his mind must have snapped. And although he did admit killing Rachel, he denied her murder which meant the case had to go to trial and put her friends and family through that ordeal. So who was John Tanner and why he killed Rachel? Tanner was born in Hampshire, but emigrated to the New Zealand town of Wanganui with his parents at an early age. He returned to England in 1986, headed back to New Zealand in 1989, but then came back to the UK three months later to start studying classics at the University of Nottingham. He seemed a regular popular guy at the university, hosting a twice-weekly show called The Fast Lane on University Radio Nottingham and he was an elected student union rep for his own halls of residence. He also played football to a decent standard having played for New Zealand at schoolboy level and he played Wrigley when at Nottingham. During the investigation, detectives reached a conclusion that Tanner murdered Rachel as she'd wanted to end their relationship. He, on the other hand, was besotted and had even asked Rachel to marry him. Detectives uncovered a 100-page file of letters written by Rachel and also her diary in which she wrote about the depth and intensity of the relationship, saying Your passion consumes me. Sometimes I am afraid. We are welded. We are two molten metals made stronger by their unity. Apart we are useless. In a separate entry she wrote I'm aware you have the capability to kill me with a word, whether you desire to or not. The balloon hangs above me like a ghost, slowly deflating. But tellingly, the diary also showed how at the time of her death, she was ready to move on from their relationship. She wrote, What a joke. I just wrote John's Valentine's card, full of sweet pure words, words that I shoveled out from some fountain inside of me, a fountain which has cracked and dried. Somehow, I don't think he would have appreciated sweet nothings along the lines of, you sick childish. Later, she added, you are so busy generating self-pity that you cannot see how you slice me to pieces. And Tanner told police it was when she rejected his marriage proposal that he killed Rachel. According to him, it was later that Saturday evening when they were in her bedroom that Rachel had told him the devastating news that she didn't want to accept his offer of engagement. He said she told him she had slept with other people, and he called her a tart in response. Tanner said that Rachel then had made a move as if she was going to hit him, at which time he lost control. Rachel was killed at some point during the night. Forensic evidence showed she'd been strangled both with Tanner's bare hands and then with a ligature. Tanner said he lifted Rachel's body from the floor onto the bed, and then he spent the night awake on the floor, wondering what to do with her lifeless body. The next morning, he hid her body under the floorboards. He emptied a cupboard under the stairs, which was full of the usual household rubbish, then dragged Rachel's body, clothed in ski pants and a t-shirt, from the nearby bedroom, along the hall, and into the recess under the floor. He then crawled along the gap under the floorboards, under the hallway. This was only an eight-inch gap, not much space to hide the body directly underneath her bedroom. And when he left the next day, it was from the railway station that he tried to create his alibi, inventing the long-haired man, and he followed this up with calls to Rachel's house after he'd killed her, asking if she was there, all answered innocently by her flatmates, who were of course blissfully unaware of her fate. During a four-day trial at Birmingham Crown Court in which he pleaded not guilty, Tana told the jury how Rachel had confessed she'd been unfaithful and wanted to end the relationship, he said. I flew at her in a rage and proceeded to put my hands around her neck. I think I must have lost control, because I have only a vague recollection of the time that elapsed afterwards. I am bewildered why I've done such a terrible thing to a person I love dearly, he added. I've never resorted to violence in my life. I've never struck or been struck by another human being. I've always resorted to active debate. If that fails, I walk away. On the 6th of December 1991, the jury returned a majority verdict of 10-2 of guilty and Tanner was given a life sentence for Rachel's murder. At the conclusion of the trial, Rachel's parents told how they forgive him. Her mum Jean said, I think the way we feel we have always felt, that this is a tragedy for him in his life as well. Yes, I think we can forgive him, because otherwise it eats into your life and the lives of others around you. If you start on the path of forgiveness, you can start to build a new life, and all the people around you can build new lives. Tanner served just under 12 years for his prison sentence, and on his release headed back to New Zealand. It was late in 2018 when Tanner next made the headlines in the New Zealand Herald newspaper, following a court appearance in New Zealand where he was found guilty of abusing his girlfriend a number of times over a six-month period. Tan had been staying with a girlfriend in a hotel when he straddled her on the bed, slapping and punching her head with a closed fist before he left the hotel room. It was five and a half hours later, after receiving a text from the girlfriend saying that the relationship was over, that he returned to her hotel. The Herald quotes the judge in the case explaining what happened next. She became worried and sat against the headboard on the bed with her knees up. You walked over. You pulled her pants down and underwear off, saying you wanted sex. It was said in a blunt and aggressive manner. You then demanded that she remove her SIM code from her phone, and as she attempted to get away from you, you grabbed her by the shirt, pulling her forward and punching her several times in the head. The victim fell onto the floor and attempted to shield her face from the blows. You punched the victim around the head and face several more times. Tanner's partner told him that he was hurting her, but he did not care, and while she was crying on the floor he said, Look what you made me do. His partner suffered significant bruising, covering her face and her head. Tanner was sent to prison for two years and nine months for this attack. Depressingly, the judge said that on another occasion when the couple were arguing, the woman said she was leaving Tanner, and he replied that she would not, and he would kill her if she left him. She did not take the threat seriously, the judge said. Despite the vicious attack on her, even more depressingly, a victim impact statement indicated the victim wanted the relationship with Tanner to continue, and that she wanted Tanner to get help with his anger issues. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Poor Rachel, at just 19, and everything to live for having her life snatched away from her. And for what? Ending a relationship. This is what you do in your teens, early twenties, isn't it? You aren't tied in for life as you both develop and change. In the end, the reality was that her real misfortune was meeting John Tanner. Tanner was, as we've heard, a possessive and selfish man. When he asked in court whether it occurred to him to try and revive Rachel, or to try to seek medical help after he'd attacked her, he said. The situation was so unusual, there was no necessity to try to revive her, because I thought, myself, she was not dead. As I was in a highly stressed state, I was probably more concerned with myself. Just so selfish. At first, in his interviews with police, he said his possessiveness had caused arguments, saying, This was."